Well, good morning once again. We are continuing this morning in our study of Romans chapter 12, but I want to begin our time by uh, together flashing back to some very important words that were spoken by the Lord on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. Knowing what lay ahead of him, the suffering that he would endure and the type of death that he would face, Jesus had some very important instructions to leave with his disciples, with his closest friends. And the reader of the Gospels, as you read them, you're forced to ask some really tough questions. What will happen to these 11 fragile men once Jesus is taken from them? What are they supposed to do? How should they respond? And I want you to try to put yourself into the story, if you can, to to slip on a pair of sandals and put yourself in the moment. You've entered the city of Jerusalem with Jesus to celebrate the Passover. And the whole city, as we know, is buzzing with his arrival. The people are celebrating him. They're shouting out messianic titles at him. Everything seems to be going well and according to plan. And now you've settled down to observe the Passover feast in that upper room alongside the master. And yet he's washing people's feet, even Peter's. Strange behavior for this one that you call master, that he would wash the feet of his servants. And then the evening takes sort of an ominous turn. Around the table, Jesus begins to speak of betrayal. And it's obvious that his spirit is troubled. He has a side conversation with Judas, and soon after that, it's, it's time to leave, and everybody gets up from the table, and you with your friends go out into the night wondering what on earth is going on. Jesus breaks the silence. He says this, little children, I am with you a little while longer. Now, I want you to try to imagine the shock of that statement if you were one of his disciples. What does that mean exactly? What, what's about to happen? Why do you have to go, go away? They, they must have been stunned by this statement. You will seek me, Jesus said, but where I'm going, you cannot come. But what if we want to come with you? If we can't follow you, then, Lord, what, what are we supposed to do? Tell us. Give us some instructions. And so Jesus gives them instruction, and what he's about to say next is, Very, very important. This is a big moment in the story. Here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, you're a good Jew. You say, wait, hold on a second. What is new about this command to love? I mean, it's right there in the law. Love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself. So why is this a new commandment? And then it dawns on you. Just as I have loved you, he said. That's what's new. I'm supposed to love others as Jesus has loved me. And in that moment, the standard for what it means to love was suddenly redefined by God in the flesh. And then your mind flashes back to that picture you had in your, in your head. Jesus with a towel in his hand and a water basin below him. The master washing the dirty feet of his servants. And in the following days, that picture would become even more full and and more clear. Not only would Jesus wash the feet of his disciples, but he would go to the cross, voluntarily giving up his life for the sake of his friends. And so this is how we define Christ-like love. 
For anyone who calls him master, that is now the standard. Love, not just in word, not in feelings, but love in deeds and in action. Love that serves. Love that prioritizes others before self. Love that sacrifices even to the point of death. That is Christ-like love. Now, the apostles eventually got it. It took them a while, but they got it. They received it from the master. They passed it along as they sought to establish and build up the church. In fact, decades later, the apostle John would write this in his first letter. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Little children, using the phrase that Jesus had used, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And the testimony of the early, earliest church fathers was that John, who of course was the last apostle on the earth, lived into his 90s, maybe even over 100, lived out his final years according to tradition in the city of Ephesus. And every Sunday they would carry him into the worship service, they tell us, because he couldn't walk on his own. And because he was the last remaining apostle on the earth, they, every Sunday they said, John, tell us what you want us to know. And in his final years, he would only say one thing. He refused to say anything but this. He said, little children love one another. And what are the testimony of the church later on in the second and third centuries? How in the world did the church overpower the Roman Empire and outlast them? in the midst of extreme trial and persecution and even martyrdom, as much as they were ridiculed by the Roman population, this could not be denied. Behold how these Christians love each other, it was said. One Roman author by the name of Cecilius was astonished by this. Here's what he writes. They love one another even before they know one another. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said. Love one another as I have loved you. Which raises the question and the challenge for us today. How about the church in the 21st century? Does the church today understand that type of love? Would it be a stretch to say that for Christians in America, that this is one of the most under-obeyed commandments in all of Scripture? And why is that? Is it because we have somehow accepted a counterfeit version of the love that Jesus describes? Is it because we've accepted a false notion of what the church was designed to be, that we are to be an actual family and love each other accordingly? Make it personal. If you and I were to take Jesus seriously at his word and obey his command to love one another as he loved us, what would that actually look like in your life? What changes might be required in the priorities, in the way that you live your life in order to fulfill the command that Jesus left with us? If you haven't already, grab your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We are in a really important and practical section. The passage that we're about to read, uh, I was thinking about this last night. The passage we're about to read ought to come with a warning label. You know the ones that you used to find on record albums? Some of you guys remember albums? I mean, if it had certain lyrics, there would be a warning label on it so that you knew what was coming. Well, this passage ought to have a warning label, only this time it would say, warning, 
conviction coming your way. <laughs> Beware. This passage is loaded. So look at verse 9. We'll start there. This is the, we looked at verse 9 last week. We'll read through verse 12 because this really is Paul's unit of thought here. Verse 9 says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. And we saw last Sunday how that can be translated, Let love be genuine or sincere. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So, so we're to love in that way. And we, we defined evil and good in the context of God's will. What is good is God's will, his good and perfect will. What is contrary to his will is evil. So we're to love in that way. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So many practical exhortations sort of squeezed here into five short verses. What we're going to do is today is just look at verses 10 and 11 since it's so packed. A, a, a series of very specific commands that tell us how we're to treat one another in the local church. You cannot get more practical than that. I said it last week. For all you guys who are who are complaining that we had all this super heavy doctrine in Romans 1 through 11, this is incredibly practical. Look around the room. How we're to treat one another in this room. That's what we're going to read about today. There's so much we can learn here, and I pray so much for us to consider. So let's look at that first phrase again in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, there's a play on words happening here in the original Greek. Paul uses two words that share the same stem. Philos, which means friend in Greek. So we have the first word you'll recognize, Philadelphia. You'll recognize that. We have a city, I think, named uh, Go Eagles, right? A city named Philadelphia, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then philostorgoi, a word that means it's translated be devoted in the New American Standard, although I don't think that's the best translation. The literal rending in the Greek, I believe, should basically look like this. In brotherly love... Have a deep affection for one another. In brotherly love, have a deep affection for one another. Now, in the church today, the, the phrase church family gets thrown around all the time. Every church in America loves to talk about church family. But I want to implore you, because it's become so common that you don't then decide that this is just some quaint little saying. That, it, that it's some uh, sort of old-fashioned way of talking about the church. It's a very real concept according to Scripture. And Paul lays it out right here in verse 10. Paul's describing the type of deep affection that comes from a family bond. From real familiarity with the people in your church. That means that in this place, here at Oak Hill, we have very real brothers and sisters. Again, those aren't just old-fashioned terms. In the eyes of the Lord, we are His family. We are adopted children, and because we're, we all call God our Father, because we're adopted into the same family, we are, in the truest sense, brothers and sisters. Do not take that for granted. Don't use it as some colloquialism, some, some quaint little thing to say, oh, brother, oh, sister. No, that's a real concept that Scripture describes. We're to have brotherly love for one another. So we're to be striving towards this, to become what God says we are, true family, that's not easy, is it? Because we are a, 
a group of diverse people from all kinds of backgrounds and cultures and languages and races and all kinds of things, and yet we're called to come into this one body and see each other as brothers and sisters, to become what God says we are. So this requires some work, doesn't it? It requires us devoting time and energy and the desire that the Spirit gives us to develop connections with each other with an eye towards fulfilling that very command that Jesus left us, not just knowing each other, but deeply loving one another. Friends, this ought to be easy. Yeah, it's hard work, but it ought to be easy. Now, why do I say that? Because it's natural and fitting for a people who are born again by the Spirit to love each other. People who are born again by the Spirit, brought together by the Lord into one body, we believe in His sovereign power, right, that He's brought us to this place, It's not an accident. And because we're born again, we have the Spirit, the Lord's brought us together. This really is ordinary fruit for a believer, that we ought to love each other. It's the fruit of a redeemed heart and a mind that's being renewed. We saw that already in Romans 12. Our minds are being renewed. We're beginning to think more in line with God's will. So what comes from that is loving each other more and more as the days, months, and years go by. Here's what it means. Affection for God will produce affection for his other children. If that's not happening, there's a problem with your affection for God. Because affection for your father will produce affection for his other children. Now, immediately as I say that, some of you have an objection in your mind. It's already come up in your head, and it goes like this. But Jeff, not everybody in this church is lovable. Ponder that statement for a moment. Is it true? Yeah, in the flesh, it's true. In the flesh, it's true. Apart from the Spirit, that is certainly a true statement. In fact, I'd go so far as to say none of us is very lovable from a fleshly perspective, including you and me. But let's not make excuses for why we can't do what Jesus commands us to do. Since when are the commands of God to be doable in our own strength? But with God, all things are possible. With the Spirit indwelling us, we can fulfill this command to love one another deeply. So how do you have affection for a fellow believer who you've dubbed hard to love? Let me give you a few ways that will really help. Again, start with the reality that Jesus commanded you to love them. Start there. Start with the fact that your ability to love them is present in you. It's a part of your new spirit-led life in Christ. Okay, so we start with those two realities. You're commanded to do it. You have the power to do it by God's spirit. But at the same time, acknowledge that you need divine empowerment to develop that love. Why? Because your flesh wars against it, right? That flesh residue in you wars against that. Your flesh is always going to want to love self more than it is to love others. You can write that down. Bank on that. Your flesh is always going to say, love self. Fulfill your own wants and desires before others. So you got to war against that. But you have the power. The spirit is there. But make this a sincere part of your prayer life. This should be a regular prayer request. Lord, help me to love as you've commanded me to love. Help me to cultivate a deeper affection for all of my brothers and sisters in my local church. Is that a prayer that God will answer? Absolutely. Why? Because it's a part of his will. That is right in line with God's will. How many of us are actually praying for that? 
Now, that's the first and that's the essential step. The rest of everything I'm going to tell you about this will not matter if you don't, first of all, fulfill that first part. If you don't want to do this, if you don't have a desire to do this, everything else I'm about to share is a waste of time because it starts there. You're going to have to want to develop a deep affection and brotherly love for others. And look, here's the reality. There are people out there in the church, professing believers who say, nope. Not interested in loving more people. They're out there. I've met plenty of folks in the church who think that way. Now, they don't really say that out loud, but it's pretty obvious that that's the way they feel based on how they operate within the body of Christ. They're just not interested in growing in love, not interested in making deeper connections with people. You know why I know that's true? Because I was once one of them. Flashback about 25 years to 30-year-old Jeff. That was me. So I know they exist in the church. I was one of those people. I just wasn't interested in growing in love. Here's what I did. I said, I'm really fine with my little circle of friends. I'm super comfy right here. The rest of the people, eh, someone will love them. What was I really saying? I prefer to love myself than love other people. Don't be like 30-year-old Jeff. It's a bad look. But they're out there. But let me carry on. If you're willing to love and if you want to obey Jesus' command, here are some ways that you can mature in this area. Start with the fact that every believer in this church, no matter how immature they are, no matter how imperfect they are, they are a child of God. Start there. Here's what that means. Jesus shed his blood for them. Oh, man, I don't know if I like that. See, that person gets on my last nerve. I really struggle with that person. But Jesus shed his blood for that person. In fact, they're forgiven for all of the things that upset you and frustrate you. They're justified by God's grace. And we can't claim that doctrine in word and then deny it by our attitudes towards them. They're justified by God. So yeah, the reality is is that fellow believers in the local church are going to sin against you. As we live life together, there's going to be those sort of nicks and cuts from our elbows as we live life in proximity. They're going to sin against you at times. Yeah, there's some in the body that are going to have a bad attitude. They're going to be prideful or arrogant. They're, They're going to be flat out annoying at times. But remember something. You're flawed too. Remember that you also have shortcomings and you have blind spots. And just like them, you have room to grow in sanctification. So take that lens that you're seeing that person. And right now, if you're struggling with somebody in the body, you can see them through your lens right now. Take that lens and flip it around and make it a mirror. It's the whole speck in the eye versus the log concept, right? Make it a mirror. And then pray that God would grow your affection for that person. And what you'll find over time is that you're able to overlook those little nicks and cuts that come with living life together if you're praying about it. You'll find that you're more able to extend grace, that you're able to give people room and time to grow. This is one of the, the most valuable things God has taught me in pastoral ministry. You've got to give people room to grow and time to grow, but you've got to love them enough to pray for them and to love them. You're going to find it easier and easier over time to love as Jesus commanded if you'll lift them up in prayer. Here's another tip that'll help. 
Look for the little evidences of God's grace in their life. If you're struggling with somebody, know that God is working in every single believer. So rather than focus on their failings, which we are prone to do, instead look for the good that God is doing through them. You'll find something if you look hard enough. Think the best of every person in your church family. Start by thinking the best. Doesn't mean you have to ignore the obvious issues, but choose to focus on the ways that they bring value to the body. Don't focus on their failings alone. Pray for them in those areas that they need to grow. Here's what I found over the years. Praying for people is way more effective than complaining about them. (laughs) We have this weird feeling. If I just complain enough, they'll change. If I just gripe to enough people, maybe it'll get back to them that they're annoying. (laughs) Really? Pray for people. Love people. Come alongside them. Don't gripe and complain. Prayer changes you. Prayer changes your attitude, and it tends to awake greater affection for other people in your heart. But most of all, most of all, if you want to grow in this area, just stop and remember how much God loves you. Stop and remember how much he's forgiven you. How can you withhold your love and grace towards people when you've received so much of it? How, how dare we, right? Isn't that the same? How dare we withhold our love and, 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 and the extension of grace when we've been given so much of it? Don't forget ever who you once were apart from the saving worst saving work of Christ. You were lost and without hope in this world. John Piper has a great observation about this. Listen to what he says. He says, when a person has been plucked from a burning building or from a sinking ship or from a dreaded disease, everything looks precious to him, especially people. How affectionate we are to the people on the shore when we've just been saved. That's our true condition. We just need to wake up to it. Right? If we really see ourselves as that desperate to be saved and we've been rescued by the grace of God, people are suddenly going to look better to us, right? Because we understand who we are. So what is it that gets in the way of true brotherly love and affection? Here's the word, selfishness, self-love, self-focus, pride. That's what gets in the way. And there's a connection here with what Paul wrote. Look up in verse 3 of chapter 12. He said, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Instead, have sound judgment. Think soundly about yourself. So he's making a connection here. See, Calvin got it right when he spoke about this. Here's what Calvin said. When someone thinks more of himself than he ought, he will love others less than he ought. Right? As our self-love grows up, our love for others goes down. So think rightly about yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. By God's grace, all of us have been born into his family, and that is the sweetest news imaginable. Listen to this. Adopted into the family of God. Even those people you struggle with in the body. Not one of us deserves it. Not one of us measures up, but we are true family. That is a fact. That is a fact established in Scripture. We are true family. So let's strive to be that, to have deep affection for one another and brotherly love. Make sense? Good. Be challenged by that. It's a good thing. Let's look at the second phrase in verse 10. This one's pretty straightforward. Paul writes, give preference to one another in honor. Well, guess what? Here's a really practical way that you can love other people, right? Give preference to them in honor. 
Now, there's, there's two aspects of this. The first one is to become less, to defer to others, to downplay yourself. Whatever honor or praise or, or thank you or whatever you think you might deserve, downplay that. Become less. And, and I'm not talking about some fake way. I'm talking about putting on true humility, recognizing who it is that's at work in you and who it is that gets the glory for the work that you're doing. See, that, that's the fastest way to be humble. That's the fastest way to deflect away and not grow prideful is to say, you know what? It's God working in me. So know who does the work in you. And then once you've sort of put your pride to death, look for ways that you can honor the efforts and contributions of those around you. Search them out. Encourage one another. Don't take people for granted. Look for ways to honor the efforts of people. Look for ways to honor how they're contributing to the body that we have. Remember, we've talked about this so many times. All of us were members of this body, and we, we celebrate with those who celebrate. We mourn with those who mourn. And when one of us is hurt, we all hurt. Well, for crying out loud, look for ways that people are contributing to make us more healthy and honor them. Honor them. And let them do the same for you. It's funny, the, the ESV actually cap captures the essence of what Paul's saying here when it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo, make it a, how many guys are really competitive? Yeah, me too. Here's a great way to live out your competitiveness in the body of Christ. Outdo one another in showing honor. See if you can win the honor everyone else sweepstakes. Maybe we should have a whole month. We'll just have a contest to see who can honor the most people. That's really what Paul's saying here. When's the last time we, you did that intentionally to honor somebody? Maybe it was a kind word on a Sunday. Maybe it was a, a text or an email during the week or a phone call. Something that, that expressed your brotherly love for them, your honor of them for some contribution that made to the health of our body. Be intentional about this. Find those things where you can say, well done, I appreciate this in you. And again, you're going to say, well, look, maybe somebody doesn't deserve my honor. The same answer applies. Look for ways to be more kind. Look more closely. Look with eyes of grace rather than criticism. Look for those, those areas where you see God at work so that you can encourage them and say, well done. You're a blessing to this body. Guys, you know this. I don't have to tell you. This is not a surprise. We live in a, in a, in a culture that is growing so coarse right now nasty, critical, snarky. I mean, go on Twitter, right? Or, or, or go to the comment section of any political you know, news article online and look at the, look at the mess that, that our, our culture's in right now. It's snarky and it's critical. But we as believers, we're not to be dragged into that vortex. We're, we're to be different. We're to be encouragers. We're to be builder-uppers. We celebrate the accomplishments of people. We thank them for their service. We admire their strengths and we forgive their weaknesses. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We're to live countercultural lives in the church. That's actually what makes people say, what's wrong with those people? Why are they so different? Because we don't get involved in that snark and we don't get involved in that criticism and we look to encourage and we're kind and we're gentle to one another. This is what drew people originally to the early church. Even in the midst of the Roman Empire, people said, look at the way they love each other. 
Guys, we live in the Roman Empire now. We should be known by our love. So here's what I think Paul has in mind here. Honoring someone is treating them as worthy of your service. Even if they don't deserve it, you can't serve them because you've been born again by the Spirit. Just as God has done with you, you can treat people better than they deserve. Here's an interesting example of that. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul shocks the world. He, he tells Christians who are stuck in slavery under the Roman Empire to regard their earthly masters as worthy of honor. You're like, well, that's a super offensive verse. Why, why would we ever think a slave master would be worthy of honor? But Paul's saying, look, they don't deserve it. But you can still count them as worthy in spite of their unworthiness. Listen to this. Just as God has counted you righteous in spite of your unrighteousness. That's countercultural. So what it boils down to is this. Prefer to honor rather than to be honored. Have that attitude in the church. Prefer to honor others rather than be honored. Find joy in encouraging others. Find joy in lifting others up for their giftedness and their passion. Find joy in expressing your thankfulness for one another. Put to death any craving that you have in your heart to be recognized and paid attention to and, and honored yourself and seek to outdo others in terms of honor. Cultivate it. Be intentional about it. This is what Paul's trying to say here. And, and this can start right away, right? You can change. We, we've already talked about it in Romans 12. Be renewed in your thinking. Be countercultural. Put this on. Last stop. Let's look at verse 11. By the way, is it, is it convicting enough yet? It really is, isn't it? Because we can all do better. Like, we're all in this boat together. This is, this is, it, these, these, these verses look really short and simple, but you start digging a little bit deeper, and you're like, wow, this is, this is big stuff. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence or zeal, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Okay, so once again, we have some key Greek words to examine. Don't be this one thing, roi, okay, sluggish, right? In the Old Testament, the sluggard, right? Don't be sluggish or lazy in your zeal to serve, but be the opposite, ziantes, fervent. And the root of that word is so cool, it means to boil with heat, to boil with heat. So catch this, in our brotherly love for those in the body, as we seek to outdo one another in honoring Listen, don't lag behind. Don't fall behind in that. Don't get sluggish or lazy in your encouraging others, in building others up and honoring others. Don't allow yourself to become weary, the Bible says, or lukewarm. What does God think of lukewarm? We know, right? He spews it out of his mouth. Don't let yourself... Guys, that is the default of humanity, even believers with flesh residue. The default is we're prone to grow weary, right? We're prone to get tired of this. Instead, be intentional to stoke the fire of your passion to serve God and those in the body of Christ. You guys know the old, uh, I'm dating myself again, but um, locomotives that were driven by coal. How did you keep that thing going down the track? You're constantly shovel shoveling coal into the furnace, right? If you stop doing that, the train stops. It's a perfect picture of what Paul's talking about here. Keep shoveling the coal in there. 
Keep stoking the fire of your passion to love one another and to encourage and build one another up. See, one of the marks of a man or woman who's fervent to serve in the church is a combination of willingness and availability. Think about those two things to get paired together. Willingness and availability. He or she has a consistent readiness to jump in and serve and to do it from a place of genuine love because that passion's being stoked in his or her life. This will go out if you don't, if you don't intentionally do this. This is why we need to be together all the time, right? On Sundays, during the midweek, in small groups, meeting together because we've got to constantly to encourage one another, right? To stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to stoke that fire, because it will go out. The temptation, of course, for the person who's more intent on loving self than others is to say, you know, I just don't feel like serving. Or, or that, you know, I know there's a need, but it, it, it doesn't really fit into my plans. I'm looking at my calendar, it's, man, it's full. I don't have time, I'm, Hey, I'm, I'm really busy. I, I know there's a need. I, I, I love people, but now nah, I, I don't see how I can, I can do it. And to make all kinds of excuses, right? The worst one I hear is, someone else will do it. Someone else will do it. That's a failure to love genuinely. A failure to extend brotherly love. Because genuine love is zealous and eager and ready to serve. Not every time, because nobody can be available all the time. Nobody can do this absolutely perfectly, but are you consistently willing and available to meet the needs that come up in the body? Once again, motivation is the key, right? Motivation means everything. Why should we put ourselves out for others? We're all tired, right? Welcome to 2019. Every person in this room has said at least once this week, I'm exhausted. I mean, that's the pace we live at. We're all tired. We're all really busy. It comes down to what we love. It comes down to who we love. That's just the, that, that's just the, the raw fact of it. Here's my favorite illustration on the subject of motivation. I hope this makes sense. For parents, it certainly will. Kids, get in the car. We're going shopping for clothes and school supplies. How long until that child says, I'm exhausted. I can't take another step. 15 minutes? Maybe 30 minutes at tops? I'm exhausted. I can't do it. Now, same kids. Kids, get in the car. We're going to Disneyland. They can go all day long. I mean, all day long they can go. Same kids, same amount of energy. Why? It's what they love. They're not sluggish for Disneyland. They're sluggish for school supplies. They're boiling over in their love for Disneyland, so they find all the energy that they need to go all day long. In fact, they'll, they'll die trying to get to every ride. <laughs> so the question is, what do you love? Who do you love? How does that affect your energy and your time and your calendar for the things that matter? Here in verse 11, Paul isn't describing someone who needs to be arm-twisted into volunteering, right? They just, they feel so guilty, they, 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 they can't figure out a way to get out of it, so they say, fine, I'll serve. That's not what he's describing here, right? Paul's describing believers who are boiling over with zeal to jump in and love others, 
because they love Jesus. I mean, they'll practically love anybody, even if it means washing dirty feet, right? Remember the picture of Jesus with the towel in one hand and the water basin at his feet. And by the way, this isn't a matter of personality, the personality type or giftedness. This is one excuse I hear a lot. Well, that's just not my gift. I have a specific gift, and it's not serving in that way. Or, or you know, I'm just a little more reserved than other people. That's not really my thing. Notice that Paul is writing to the entire church at Rome here. I don't see any excuse built into what he's saying here to say, well, only certain types of people. Or the other types of people, you get a pass on this. Everybody is to love and to serve. So this call here applies to to every believer in the church, if you're young or if you're old, if you're single or if you're married, if you're a student, if you're retired. Everybody is called to this. Doesn't matter your station in life. If you profess to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, if you're a beneficiary of his mercy, then the prospect of love and service in the body should boil you up. It should cause you to get passionate. Much has been written about this, but it deserves repeating. You've probably heard this before. Nowhere in the New Testament will you see the word volunteer. (laughs) Did you know that? We talk all the time, oh, volunteers in the church. That is not in the New Testament. We're not volunteers of righteousness. We're volunteers of Christ. We are what? We're slaves. Oh, we're slaves. Why? Because Christ purchased us with his blood. He he ransomed us out of the, the slave market to sin and death. And so the scripture says, you no longer belong to yourself. We're not our own. I didn't really mean that. Right? This is what we try to do with, with the statements that Jesus, ah, yeah, yeah, I don't know if he really meant that. You are not your own, he says. We belong to Jesus as slaves, not volunteers. So our time and our energy and our money, they're not ours. Our leisure time, our vacations, our careers, Even our families don't belong to us in the sense that we can do with them as we please. We're slaves of Christ. We've been bought at a price. So it all belongs to him now, to the master. And if we want to please him, we'll use all these things for his glory and to fulfill his purposes and to obey his commands. See, you know this. There's a fundamental difference between a volunteer and a slave, right? Volunteers choose when and how they serve. Slaves are always on call, whether they want to serve or not. Volunteers can quit serving if they get tired. If their schedule fills up, they just say, no, thank you. Slaves don't have that luxury. They're on call all the time. They serve. They serve when the master calls. Volunteers have certain expectations. If I serve, I expect to be thanked and praised and honored. Slaves have no expectation of that, none whatsoever. So are you a slave or a volunteer? here at Oak Hill Bible? It's a good question. And and how might your perspective on that change the way you operate within the body of Christ? Now, I realize that that teaching can cause offense. By the way, there's a lot of hard teachings in the Bible that cause offense. Who likes being called a slave? Anybody? Anybody say, well, that really feels good. I I really want to be a slave. We Americans prize our freedom, don't we? We want to do as we please. Don't 
Fence me in is a famous saying in America. Don't tell me what I have to do. I'm free. That's our natural right we've been taught. So listen, back off, Jeff. Don't tell me what I have to do. This is just church. Let that sit there for a second. We've been taught a whole bunch of unbiblical things, haven't we, about church. It's just church. Can you imagine a first or second century Christian living under the shadow of Roman persecution saying, oh, it's just church. Just church. For those believers, the church was a precious shelter from pain and suffering. For those believers, Jesus was everything. Their very reason for waking up in the morning. They're all in all. For those believers, their relationships in the church weren't viewed as casual They weren't viewed as things that we try to do if we can fit it into our calendar. They were a very lifeline for those folks. They would never say it's just church. So why do we say it? It's because you and I have allowed so many competing desires into our lives. Some of it's come from the culture. It seeped in. Some of it, we've opened the door wide. And now we have all these competing desires and all these things we want to do. And we say, oh, that's just church. I'll put that in a little box over here. I mean, if, if somebody could come back from the first, second, third century, they say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What do you really love? Who do you worship? Do you worship the Lord, the one who gave everything for you, who bought you at a price? Is it not a privilege to serve this king who washes your feet and goes to a cross to pay the ransom for your sin? Is that not everything? Or is it just church? I say let's take Paul's exhortation here seriously. Let's take it seriously. He wants us to be hard workers for the sake of the kingdom, not lazy, not sluggards. Abounding in the work of the Lord, he said to the Corinthians. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And he doesn't want us to work out of resentment. He wants us to work with fervent Passion. Here's a way to summarize this. Do lots of work for Christ and do it passionately. Man, you can put that on your mirror at home. That's a great one. Do lots of work for Christ and do it passionately. That's our calling. By the way, the elder team here at Oak Hill, we're doing everything we can to help you live out this command. I mean, this is one of the beautiful aspects of being in a smaller church. We need tons of slaves to make church happen. Tons of workers, especially in a church that doesn't have a church building. where We've got to set up and break down and do all this work. It's really hard here at Oak Hill to just slide in and slide out. That's by design. That's by design. Because of scriptures like this one. There's so many opportunities to serve the body of Christ here. The testimony of so many of you guys is, look, I was at a big church for a long time. And the teaching was great. Everything was fine. Nobody ever asked me to serve. In fact, I couldn't find a place to serve. There's just too many people. And so you've matriculated over here, and you're like, this is awesome. I get to put my hands to the plow. I get to do the work of the Lord to advance the kingdom. Amen and amen, right? It's awesome. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we established our three ministry teams, our care team and our impact team and our body life team. By the way, we didn't put those together because, oh, we just want to be taskmasters. We just want to crack the whip and make sure you guys are working. No, we established those teams because we as an elder team are called 
to train you for the works of service, and because we want you to fulfill these commands, to love one another, to serve the body of Christ. Now it's your choice to do it or not. Now it's your choice to say, I embrace this. How can I put my hands out and, and, and put my hands to the plow? Or not. We want to see you seize the opportunity to live out the commands of Scripture, to love as Jesus commands us to love. So let me wrap up. Let's come back to that, to that teaching where we started this morning. With, with all that, now that we've gone through these two verses, now that maybe you have a broader perspective, let's come back to what we asked. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Does the church today understand how high that calling is? Do you understand how high that calling is? Is that not life-changing? Or are you like, ah, he didn't really mean that. Are you under-obeying this command? Have you allowed other desires and affections and appetites and circumstances to come in and displace your first love? It happens to all of us. Repent. Turn around. Seek your first love once again. Do you truly consider the people around you this morning to be your family? Is that how you see them? Do you have an obligation to the people that are in this building with you to love them and to serve them? If you and I were to take Jesus seriously and seek to obey this command and respond to Paul's exhortation in verses 10 and 11, what would that actually look like? What changes would you have to make in your life? These are all really good questions to meditate on and reflect on. What does that look like? How do I change so that I can begin to fulfill the command that Jesus gives us? Let me wrap up with this. When I stop and I look at the commands of Scripture like this, and there's a ton of them in these verses, here's what I see. I see God calling us to think and do and feel to the absolute nth degree in radical ways. Not in lukewarm ways, not in, ah, that's enough, that's good enough, that's adequate, to the nth degree. Because he's our first love. So not just loving, but loving genuinely, right? Not just identifying evil, but abhorring it, he says. Not just recognizing good, but clinging to it with your last breath. Not just liking each other, but having this deep affection. Not just honoring others, but outdoing others in honor. Not just serving, but boiling over with zeal. Friends, the problem is so many Christians today, we've accepted as good enough far less than God has commanded us. I said that's good enough. It's just church. There's a commitment here in Paul's words, a level of determination to the highest sense that should mark the life of a Christ follower. And here's why. Because he gave everything for you. That's the ultimate reason, right? The ultimate motivation. He gave everything for you. So how can we be lukewarm for him? May we have ears to hear this and the passion to obey everything that Paul says in this text. Amen? Let's close our eyes and reflect on that. I'm going to give you just a 30 seconds to a minute to, to have a conversation with God about all that you heard this morning, what you read in the text, and I'll close this in prayer.
Lord Jesus, I am, I am so grateful this morning that you weren't lukewarm in your love for us. That you gave everything for your elect. And we, Lord, are the beneficiaries of the many mercies of God in you. And so help us to understand that this morning, Lord. Help us, Lord, help us not to respond out of guilt because of this message or guilt because of what Paul's written, but because of the truths behind it and how much you have given to us, how much you have forgiven us. And let our response be authentic. Let it be in genuine love for you and for the brothers. That's my prayer for me, for all of us here this morning, that we would respond well so that you would be glorified in us and we might fulfill the commands that you've given us. Thank you that your spirit's within us, that we are enabled, that we have the power to live it out. Help us now to will, to do our part, to will to love one another well for your glory and for the advancement of the kingdom in this church, we pray.